Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. Bring. I, I add the bring on my own. You don't need the bring. Okay, you do it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, All right thank you. Uh, yeah, welcome back. It's our uh, letters podcast where we answer your emails. Uh, you can email us on this show, letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And, uh, yeah, we respond to your responses to our various podcasts. Do you uh, like the things we say, hate the things we say, disagree with the things we say, have questions about the things we say, have questions about trees. Or want us to say things about things. Thingies! Anything you want. The society of putting things on top of other things. Uh, If you're new, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I write for IGN, a TV guide now. Hmm. Once. And uh, <laughs> to start, to start, I have pitched other ideas. You're doing great, buddy. I'm doing okay. I love you. Uh, and I uh, also read letters on this show. That's right. And uh, we're just going to get started because mm. we had to miss an episode last week. We talked about it on the most recent episode of the critically acclaimed show where we review new movies. But long story short, uh, a series of illnesses followed by the extreme inconvenience of California being completely on fire. Uh, led to some problems last yeah. week, and we're very eager to we, catch up. We were trying to catch up be- just because we were overworked, and then we- I got sick. Yeah. And then the state caught on fire, and that just sort of put everything at a dead halt for a moment. Uh, but we're back, and we're here to read your letters. And we're safe, if and anyone was yes, concerned and missed the last episode. We're fine, but it led to problems just across the board. Air quality, traffic, mm. everything's been pretty bad. But. Yeah. We're fine. We're going to read your letters. Let's get started. Whitney, what are we starting with? Uh, We're starting with a letter from Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Jacob. Thanks for calling. Oh, and uh, by the way, as always, uh, if you want to write in, sign off how you want me to address you. I'm not going to read your name out of the subject line because you might not want me to say that. Indeed. Uh, So, yeah, whatever you put at the bottom, that's what I'm going to read. You can put, like... It's okay if you want to come up with a cool pseudonym. Yeah, like Royal Knife Thrower, whatever you want your name to be. Knife Thrower hyphenated? Royale. Knife Thrower Royale. No, Royale, first name. Knife Thrower, one word. No ah, hyphen. I was going to put a comma in there. But anyway, moving on. When, uh, for, for, to start with an aside, though. When, uh, whenever sorry, I mail, Jacob. Sorry, Jacob. We'll get to your letter. <laughs> when, uh, whenever I mail packages to people like via a mail order service, yeah. I always make sure to include like a cute, dumb nickname in their name so they know it's from me. Well, it's it makes you know it's it's actually handy around the holidays because they know which ones are from me and which ones aren't. Yeah, because they just throw the other one. I away. also I also gave myself a really stupid middle name that is re- instantly recognizable, so I know which ones I ordered and which ones a friend might have. Oh, I get it. To me. Okay, that sorts that makes sense. out a little that, bad. That I mean, not that the other one's bad, but that yeah. one makes sense. So All I'm right. not going to tell you what my imaginary middle name is because that's my password. But I recommend everyone do the same. Bone cruncher. You can be Bone Cruncher. No, I mean... The one for my sister is Shark Destroyer. (laughs) Well, if if we're going up to Shark Destroyer, don't stop at Bone Cruncher. (laughs) Give me a good one. Moving on. Okay. Uh, Jacob writes, Hello, gents. Uh, Bibbs, this may be your shot at a pilot for What Does God Need with a Podcast Anyway? Uh, Several times over the last few months, Bibbs has addressed the morality of Darth Vader. Comparing him, rightfully so, to Hitler. On a recently, recent episode of All Our Yesterdays, that's our Star Trek podcast. Mm-hmm. Exclusive uh, for Patreon subscribers, mm-hmm. but uh, 
you know, available. J- Jacob is a listener, and it's available. Just um, make sure everyone knows. Uh, Bibbs talks about how Darth Vader turning on Palpatine wasn't sufficient to show the character redeeming him themselves. Whitney agreed with this. Now I know Whitney is a Christian Methodist question mark, and Bibbs is non-religious atheist question mark. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, yeah. I, I am not about right. I am Methodist. Yeah, I'm atheist. Uh, Every once in a while, I lean towards agnostic on a rough day. Okay. <laughs> so some days, oh, come on, anything. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, my question: uh, Do you think someone as evil as Darth Vader or Hitler could be redeemed? Moral complexity. Uh, um, giant moral question. Yeah. Uh, not not should. Uh, not should. Just. Could if so, what could Darth Vader do in his limited time to redeem himself other than killing Palpatine? For the sake of argument, Vader knows that he's about to die and can't stick around to redeem himself long term. Mm-hmm. I'll uh, I'll keep my comments off the air, says Jacob. Um, can oh. Darth? What could Darth Vader have done to redeem himself? Okay, if Darth Vader wanted to actually like, and all he has is the amount of time he has in the end of Return of the Jedi. Uh-huh. By the end of Return of the Jedi, he will be dead. That's the parameters we're talking about. Mm. What could he do that, in my eyes, would say Darth Vader wasn't just a complex character, didn't have a good quality here or there, but actually redeemed himself? And the mm. thing I will suggest is destroy the Death Star. Okay. The Rebels failed to destroy the Death Star. Mm. Darth Vader did it himself. There you go. That's something where I would say, like, any sacrifice himself to do it. Yeah, yeah. Like, even then, I don't think it's cut and dry. But then I would say that is someone who is not doing something in his own self-interest. Because if you're saving your own child's life, that's an act of love. I'm not going to deny that. Mm. But there is an element of self-interest in there. That's a part of you. Right. So you're not saving some random stranger. That's There's a different level of altruism mm. involved. So if he had saved... The entire galaxy, uh-huh. at, at the very least, you know, the Endor and all the rebels on it and everything like that, and the Ewoks and everything, like a whole planet mm. to just to take over, to make up for destroying Alderaan. Yeah. Uh, and completely hobbled the Empire and essentially won the war for the rebels, mm. more or less single-handedly. I would say there's an argument to be made that he redeemed himself. Okay. There's an argument to be made. Even then, I don't think it's cut and dry. But I would say there's an argument. Mm. Of course, what you're arguing, mm. and here's where it gets really tricky, yeah. is that he's now killing all of his own soldiers. Yes. Now, you, you're you assuming that all of those soldiers that are fighting for the Empire are also all evil and are, are worthy of being executed. Well, okay. And granted, but uh-huh. we're accepting that we are in a position of war. And mm-hmm. that everyone that the rebels are shooting down in their TIE fighters and A-wings and Y-wings or whatever deserve what they got anyway. So we're yeah. already accepting well, yeah, a, a clear... This is one of the reasons why I suspect Lucas decided to clarify that all of the uh, stormtroopers, at mm. least initially, were clones. Because they're, they're disposable. They have they're, le- less value to their lives. Less agency. Yeah. And I know that the Clone Wars TV series articulated that the Clone War, that the clones had mm. more agency than perhaps was obvious or readily apparent, but I'm pretty sure making them all, like, face, like, literally faceless, they all have the same face, so they might as well be faceless. Oh. Uh, was some attempt to make up for mm. we're killing a lot of stormtroopers in this yeah. thing, and maybe some of them are conscientious objectors. Maybe some of them are just doing this mm. to put their kids through college. I don't know how it works. War is complicated, and not everyone enlists for the same reason. Mm. But when we're dealing with war, 
and a war over you know not not some like complicated political skirmish that like why are we even doing this like you know mm-hmm. World War One where everyone's like wait a minute why are we doing this again like <laughs> what, what what's our stake in this one like World War Two for example we know why we're doing it the American mm-hmm. Revolution we know why we're doing yeah. it American Civil War we know why we're doing it so the, there's a certain yeah. moral certainty and, uh, in that if, if this person is on the other side they are standing in the way of goodness and right I, I think because when uh, when George Lucas was making the original Star Wars in 1977. It was a dogfight movie. It was a World War II movie. Very clearly a World War II movie. Which was hearkening back to those cheapy serials that were made in the 40s and 50s, which were also World War II movies. Yeah. About sort of this very clear-cut view that American society had of war. And I think that's why... A lot of people liked Star Wars. It was clear cut. It was easy, mm-hmm. and it came the out. And it, and it came out at a time when yeah. everything was really complicated and difficult. So a yeah. lot of people were saying, "Oh, finally, we can have a war picture and not have to worry about the morality of it." Yeah, after all of the Vietnam War, you know, horrors mm. after uh, you know, and the incredibly corrupt reasons why we went into that war in the first place. Mm. After the Watergate scandal, after all of these like a decade of challenging blockbuster films about. Moral Moral uncertitude. Uh, yeah. Oh. Star Wars was very refreshing. So, and it was good enough that you could take it seriously. It wasn't just some fly-by-night silliness. Because mm-hmm. the other thing that it's based on is Flash Gordon serials, which yeah. were ultra-simplified as well. That, that, yeah, I, I mentioned that. Oh, uh, did but, you? I missed yeah. that. <laughs> My but, bad. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then they made a sequel. Then they made another sequel. And we're still in that mindset. There's good guys and there's bad guys. And the shades of gray aren't so gray. Mm-hmm. Uh I think by the time they started making those prequel movies, well, I mean, come on, the second one came out after 9-11, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of these new questions to ask, and the idea of having this big escapist Mm -hmm. uh, sort of war fantasy wasn't going to play anymore. Well, and and I think to Lucas's credit, I think he fumbled the execution really bad. But He he, he was trying to do something at least, something kind of different with the Star Wars. If we establish that the Empire, and this is there in their genocidal actions to Mm -hmm. their jackbooted address the empire are nazis right they're space nazis they're the equivalent of nazis uh then the prequel trilogy is about the rise of the nazi regime Presumably, about the rise yeah. of the third reich so we have to see how the republic fell mm. and it fell for economic reasons and you mm. saw that the phantom menace and you saw that for sort of insidious reasons as well and ultimately the, the a lot of people in were just Asked for it, mm-hmm. like they were swayed by propaganda and fear mongering, and well, which they just was, said, "Please take away our rights; we'll feel safer." And the, of course, those, the second and third movie came in the wake of the USA Patriot Act mm-hmm. and all these other things that were going on with the George W. Bush administration. Mm-hmm. Some things that George W. Bush said are put in Emperor Palpatine's mouth, like almost verbatim. I remember when Republicans were really pissed about that. They yeah. were just like, "Oh my God, you're calling Bush uh, evil," and I'm like, nah, "I think you are. I think you're admitting it right now <laughs> that." You're, you're, the president is saying evil emperor shit. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, I, so, th- I think, so I think Star Wars I, is I doing think, all that stuff. I just think it's badly presented in almost I, every I, way. I think, well, it's badly presented, and I think the quick, easy moral solution that, that George Lucas came up with in that second movie was the soldiers aren't people. The soldiers yeah. are clones, and who are they fighting? They're fighting robots, and yeah. they're not people either. Yeah, they're not they're true, property. They're so, not true believers. Mm. They're not people who uh, have you know complex decisions for why they have joined the Emperor's side. Mm. They're clones. And you're right, that is too easy. I agree. It's, I think that does undermine really, the it's whole... It's really simplified, and it does, yeah. it's presented really badly, and it undermines a lot. Yeah. But I, under, I at point. least appreciate that George Lucas is trying to make 
a complicated war into something simple and morally clear once again, which is what the original films were. Yeah. Uh, but he's doing, he's going, he's doing the not fun part. Yeah. And like the fun part of war is the hell is for hero stuff and the damn busters and all these, you know, B movie right. action, it, you it, know, parables. We, we should not have gone to the politicians. It should have been just the soldiers. If probably would have been better. Way. Or, or at least um, politicians are subplots rather than exactly yeah. instead of the main characters. Uh, the problem is we've reached this point in film discourse where we're thinking very deeply about these pop entertainments right away. Mm. Like, even before we've seen them. I remember all the discourse about Joker before it even came out. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember that. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> from, like, two months ago. Ah, and uh, No one was alive then. And now we're finally asking these questions. Well, what was the morality of Darth Vader? And we're mm. saying the morality of Darth Vader is bad and... He's what, a villain. We're, what we're objecting to, uh, you and I personally, is that Darth Vader has been taken by all of the ancillary stuff, by like the marketing mm. and, and all the, the design and the well. shows and yeah. all this, and is turned into essentially a hero character. He's a super villain, but he's the one everybody likes. Well, people talk about all oh, the tragic fall of Darth uh, Vader. May, maybe, but from what he was a kid, and then he was a shitty teenager, and then he was a fascist. Like it kind <laughs> of moved no, pretty no, quick. There's no fall there. Like the, yeah, the I know the show shows you more stuff, in, but it's uh. in the in the 1977 film. There's that Alec Guinness speech where. He talks about it. he was seduced by the dark side. So we envisioned a fall, but that's not what ended up being dramatized. No, they went up dramatized. They, they, they ended up saying that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father, like changed it around on us after the first film. True. And and all of a sudden his arc is completely different. Very, very true. Um, and again, I know the show mm. shows you a lot of other stuff, but the show, like the Clone Wars show, where you mm. see Anakin being more heroic, which I've only seen some of. I'm not going right. to pretend I've seen the whole thing. But what I can say with certainty is that it takes place after he slaughtered women and children. In right, yeah, the clone. So the, the fall has already <laughs> begun. So he's he's already on his way downward. But yeah. more than You're, that. You, every yeah. episode of the Clone Wars that we're showing to kids, like, look at how heroic Anakin is. That guy killed a lot of kids. <laughs> like actual already. children. Yeah. And the children, I killed them. Yeah. Uh, but it's not so much the people glomming onto the tragic fall of Darth Vader. It's mm-hmm. the way he's been depicted as a badass. Yeah. Or as a war, like, Darth Vader, like, Luke Skywalker and Dad. And they're, like, just sort of playing around. Or... <clears throat> I, I know a lot when, um, uh, what you call it, Rogue One was released. Mm-hmm. Rogue One, a movie I loathe, by the way. Um, I, I don't loathe it, but uh, I don't think it's a particularly good movie. Uh, there's a scene in that movie where Darth Vader appears in a corridor and just kills a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. And it makes Darth and Vader scary again, I'll give you that. It makes him scary, but when I saw that film with an audience, they were cheering at that moment. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people saying that's like an exhilarating, wonderful Star Wars moment when Darth Vader murders all these people. And I think people respond in a rather exhilarating way to Darth Vader's strength. They like him. They, you know, after the first movie, he was such a popular character. They kind of made him into the main villain in the mm-hmm. second film. Is it possible? And then all of the prequels were about him. Yeah, is it possible that the response to Rogue One wasn't so much awesome? Darth Vader is cool. I'm glad he did that. Mm. But awesome, Darth Vader, who has been sort of oversaturated and turned into a you know a more heroic mm. anti-heroic whatever you want to call it figure is the villain again possibly We're that, acknowledging that, could also that, he's, be that. that he's just the villain now because mm. that's all he is in rogue one mm. he's this phantom presence yeah you know what I mean? but like <laughs> he's, is, he's a phantom menace you I, might say. basically yeah. but yeah like that's all he is that's he's the boogeyman mm. oh. in that movie i would argue that if that's what you take away from it, i think that scene works fine 
uh, perhaps, but um, that that doesn't seem to be the the response I'm reading from audiences. We can't control all the responses. I that suppose we get no, we can't. That's but. just I'm just commenting on what I've been seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I case. think I think a lot of people are rooting for uh, Darth Vader to be quote redeemed at the end of Return of the Jedi mm-hmm. because. I think a lot of people don't want to admit that their favorite character in this long-running film franchise is a, is, is a gigantic murdering space Nazi. Yeah. They, if, we, if we redeem Vader, our fandom is justified. Yeah. Maybe. That's, that, I think that's what's really going on. Here. Maybe that's the case. Maybe not. Let's move yeah. on to another letter. All right. Uh, here's a letter from uh, Cody Cannon. Hello, Cody Cannon. Hello. Uh, dear Whitney and Rockmeister McCool. Thank you. <laughs> With Dolomite is my name, having recently come out on Netflix, which I loved, by the way. Mm, that's too. I, w- I was that was Cody, not me. Oh, <laughs> no, I'm saying us yeah. too. We loved yeah. it. We just reviewed it. Uh, I was wondering what your familiarity with the black exploitation genre was, since it seems to be right up your alley. Do you guys have any <laughs> favorites or recommendations? Ooh. I would like to recommend the film Black Shampoo. Ah, actually, I've seen that not one. seen Black Shampoo. To you both, if you have not seen it, the movie is hot garbage, and I love every minute of it. Black Shampoo is about a sexy male hairdresser that his female clients throw themselves over, who has to protect his secretary from a mob leader that she used to belong to. The cinematography is also done by Dean Cundey. Oh, yeah, he worked a lot on those films. Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, the first three Halloween movies, and The Thing. Uh, And I love the tagline, he's bad. He's mean. He's a loving machine. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to be down to watch this movie? Thanks for taking the time to read this email, even if it doesn't make it onto any podcasts. It did! Yay! Um, okay, so the exploitation genre. We, we touched upon it a little bit when we talked about Dolomite is my name. Uh, I am not an expert on the exploitation genre. Mm. It is a broad genre. There, it, it, most of the films that are considered officially... Uh-huh. In the black exploitation genre, were made in the seventies and early eighties, but they were churned out. <laughs> they were low budget productions. They were made on mass, and good for them. That's great. But as a result, I haven't seen a lot of them. Just mm. it's I I haven't seen the Black Alley Cats mm. or well, I, Black Cobra I or Black to, Devil Doll from Hell. Oh, actually, that one's a little later, but... I, I have to admit, I haven't seen Sweet Sweet Back, uh, which I yeah. know is, is a big hole in my education, but I have seen all of the Shaft movies, yep. uh, including that new horrible one. Uh, the original Shaft is so damn good. It's really good. It's so slick, uh, and I, it's weirdly progressive compared to even the new one, mm-hmm. which is weirdly oh, regressive. Yeah. Oh, the, the new one is... Uh, I, it was uh, Dave White and Alonso Duralde, mm-hmm. uh, critic friends of ours who do the linoleum knife podcast who turned uh who pointed out that shaft as played by samuel l jackson in that movie is now archie bunker Mm -hmm. he's the old world conservative yeah it's really weird because you watch the original shaft he's a champion of everyone who doesn't have power in the social dynamics of the 1970s yeah um and he's he's really great. I uh, uh, Richard Roundtree. Richard Roundtree. Uh, I knew his name. I was going to say something else, but yeah. Richard Roundtree is sexy and powerful, but not like not the sleazy sort of. Well, way. He doesn't throw it around. He doesn't uh-huh. need to. He's just cool. So um, it's a little slow by modern action movie standards, but that one's a classic mm. for a reason. Um, my favorite black exploitation movie is a film that is typically considered like the last big one. Uh-huh. Uh, it's Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. So from like the mid eighties. Mid eighties. I've I've heard it described by a lot of texts as the last, like official. We can agree this is part of the tradition. Mm. 
uh, and not, not not like a callback. Like Aww. you see some lists online, and like Black Klansman is considered a black exploitation film. And I'm like, I see where you're coming from. I think that's a stretch. Mm, no. Or like, even if you go to the '90s <clears throat> and you see films like Original Gangsters, which is a throwback and features a lot of the original yeah. cast, I, I, and it is a black exploitation. There's more of a case for Original Gangsters, but it's yeah. not like part of the original wave. It's mm. like I would say that like. The Last Dragon is arguably like the last film in like the French New Wave, like that original okay. chunk. Like, yeah. it, but it's right at the tail end. But uh, the Black uh, Last Dragon is fucking great. It stars, it's really weird. It's really weird. It's really funny. It's it's very knowing. Um, it's a film about uh, the relationship, uh, w- well established relationship in the um, uh, black communities between uh, black exploitation cinema and Hong Kong kung fu cinema. Hmm. Uh, and it stars Timac as a guy named Bruce Leroy. Uh, who is a martial arts expert who uh, runs afoul of an evil arcade magnet <laughs> who wants his girlfriend to be a pop star and keeps kidnapping Vanity so that she'll put her music on TV. And it's weird. The action's actually really, really cool. It's really, really funny. It's surprisingly intelligent. Um, it's it's an excellent film, and that's probably my favorite. Mm-hmm. What about What's your favorite? Uh, well... Uh, like you, I'm not like super well versed, but I have seen. Uh, I mean, think of who I work for. Uh, Quentin Tarantino is my boss. You've probably seen a lot. So I've I've yeah. scraped up a, a, a against a lot of black exploitation movies, especially a lot of Pam Greer movies. And Pam uh, Greer is like the uh, the queen, uh, uh, the, the the ruler of the genre. I think some people would say it's Richard Roundtree. It's Pam Greer. No, I think it's Pam. In, I think she's ter- number one in terms of a- attitude and volume. Uh, it's Pam Greer. And so I've seen Coffee. I've seen Sheba Baby. I've seen Foxy Brown. Uh, just uh, she was in so many of these wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful movies. Foxy where, Brown's my favorite. The movie's great. I mean, I know it's the obvious one, but she's. Well, so I, I, I would say Coffee, but uh, yeah, Black, Black Mama, White Mama is not bad either. Um, the, the the working title for Coffee was Burn Coffee Burn. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Just there, there was so much uh, um, strength and attitude in the black exploitation genre. Yeah, uh, that. You, you can't really watch them without being affected. Mm. Um, especially, you know, a lot of these films were coming from a, a marginalized community that were you know, suffering at the hands of the man. And they were expressing through pop media, however sloppily they did it. A lot of these black exploitation movies just suck. <laughs> they're just, but they're, yeah, they're, they they're were, naive. Yeah. Like, they're, they're amateur productions. Exactly. They're amateur productions. Yeah. They're, a they're lot. A- amateur. Pro- yeah, we, we just talked about Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, the, the righteous indignation behind even the worst exploit, uh, black exploitation movies, mm-hmm. uh, is, uh, palpable and infectious for every audience, yeah. I would say. There's not anybody who's going to sit down, watch coffee, and think, oh, harumph, that Pam Greer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to watch any Pam Greer film and think, yeah, Pam Greer. Yeah. <laughs> Go Pam, yeah, I, I hope you do take down the man, and I'm I'm the man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh um... Another, uh, oh, another one I want to, I want to give a shout out to uh, is uh, another. One. I don't think it's always considered part of the black exploitation genre, but mm-hmm. I think it is. Uh, Car wash. 
Car, wa- car wash is most certainly, and it's great. Car, car wash is the shit. Mm. Car wash and actually Superfly are, mm. I think, belong on any list of the best movie soundtracks ever made. Oh, for sure. Car wash and Superfly just like have you need those two mm. discs in your car. <laughs> you don't have a CD player anymore. You just need them right there, <laughs> just to have them in your car. They will. They'll make you cooler. He'll be like, "Ooh, can we listen to Car Wash?" And he'd be like, "No, but you can look at it." Like, <laughs> but like seriously, those are Superfly is my pick for the greatest movie soundtrack of all time. Period. Uh, End of I'm, sentence. I'm not going to argue with that. Not even close. But I, in my top ten as well mm. as Car Wash, because it's the shit. Yeah. Oh, so damn good. Um, uh, yeah, but yeah, Rudy Ray Moore is a big chunk of my ex- expertise with the exploitation genre. Um, one I'd like to, to recommend uh, mm. that is usually seen off to the side, like even like a cult oddity, even within exploitation, is Ralph Bakshi's Coonskin. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, uh, it's Which it's sort of like a, a hell of a title, of course. But he's yeah, he's being confrontational. He, he's well, I mean, that's that's Ralph Bakshi's. I just want to make sure people are aware yeah, that, that yeah. we know. Yeah, we yeah. Know. Um, but yeah, it's it was it's a partially animated film. It's partially live action, and it's kind of. Uh, a spoof of Song of the South, which was still getting re-releases up until the mid-80s. Yep, the mid-80s had a major theatrical re-release of Song of the South. In, like, mainstream theaters. And there were protests then. There were also protests when it came out, originally. It was always a problem, but we just... (laughs) The mainstream just kept yeah, pushing Ralph, those voices aside. Ralph Bakshi yeah, was lo- looking at these sort of like family-friendly versions of racism that were just in the media at the time, and decided to make an animated film that was kind of a, a parody of that. And yeah. I think that's a good one to seek out. Um, again, it's very confrontational. It's weird because it's Ralph Bakshi; he didn't yep. do anything straight. Uh, but yeah, that that I think is a, a little gem that can be talked about more and rediscovered um anyway we hope that helps you out um there's actually what's the what's the name of that great documentary uh, uh that they made about black exploitation cinema like 10 years ago oh it's not just badass no badass is, oh, the, no, that, is was, the, that was about the making of sweet sweet bag yeah yeah which is also good but mm-hmm. uh hold on a second i just want to make sure i recommend this because it's a really great broad mm-hmm. overview of the genre uh oh it's badass cinema Badass cinema. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There's badass, which is of course about Sweet Sweetback's badass song, um, and then there's badass cinema, which came out in 2002, and it's really great. It's mm. a really really great uh, documentary, and I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Rudy Ray Moore, Superfly, you, all the famous ones are out there. Yeah. Anyway, here is a letter from Kenny, and this is from a little while ago. Okay. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. Hello. On a recent episode of The Two Shot, in your discussion of Gods of Egypt, you briefly discussed Alex Proyas' film Knowing. Ah, yes. Uh, you mentioned that it is actually a very thoughtful and ambitious movie that perhaps didn't quite stick the landing. I agree, and it got me thinking about other films I really love that are also flawed, but intelligent and ambitious. Mm. Uh, one that came to mind is Darren Aronofsky's film The Fountain. Mm. I've always loved this movie and have been fascinated by mm. all the themes and big ideas he was shooting for, although I'm not quite sure it comes together coherently. Uh, are there other films like these that you love or would simply recommend also while recognizing their imperfections? Uh, thank you, as always, for your constant enthusiasm for movies. You have a unique voice in the online film community, and I will continue to be a fan. Best, Kenny. Well, thank you very much, Kenny. Uh, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, yeah, I actually um, – if your movie has interesting ideas or odd things to say, uh, I'm frequently willing to cut you a little slack if other yeah. things about it are less polished um, because – we need new ideas. We need new mm. imagery. We need new concepts. We need new themes explored. 
uh, or at least in in significantly different ways. Um, so a lot of the movies that I've recommended over the years are movies that have a little bit of a caveat. Case in point, Jupiter Ascending, yeah, well, which I think is a really uh, a really thoughtful treatise on economic woes throughout the ages mm. in a sci-fi backdrop. It's, yeah, it's and, about about the. Uh, the history of the ruling class, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, and it, it's a political story. It's a political story. It's also a very subversive mm-hmm. uh, take on the sort of princess fantasy movie. Like, it's basically the princess diaries if Julie Andrews was space Hitler. Like, <laughs> that's... Like, a, that, that's... Well, and that's That's something, an interesting thing. <laughs> it, it's... I, we'll talk... We're going to do a, a commentary track for Jupiter Ascending It's a little soon, late cause but, for a lot of reasons. But, like, yeah, it's a clunky film in some regards. Well, but it's so fascinating that I love it. I, I was actually going to mention another uh, Wachowski, Wachowski film, uh, Cloud Atlas, oh, a yeah. film which is m- one of the most ambitious I've ever seen. It takes place over multiple time frames. Uh, the same actors play multiple roles, and they're trying to get at this gigantic notion of eternal... Uh, uh, transmigration of the universal soul as explored through, like, Jungian psychology, language, music, art, and religion. Mm -hmm. It tries to do all of that and tries to make it into kind of an exciting science fiction-type story. It tries to cast every single actor they can find Mm -hmm. as different ages, genders, ethnicities. The ethnicities is where they really screw up because it's, I think... They cast, like, Jim Sturgis as an Asian man. Well, in one part, but he also plays a British guy. He plays a bunch of different characters throughout. But, like, even so... Mm. I think that was a miscalculation, and I think there's too much baggage with that to, like, even try to pursue that in a positive way, Mm -hmm. I think was a huge miscalculation. I do think it torpedoes the film, but the ambition is there. You're right. It's an uh, interesting film. I I think think that was a huge mistake. And this idea of, like, transmuting and uh, sort of traveling between bodies is a really interesting theme to explore considering that the filmmakers are trans. Yeah. Uh, I think that also also plays into it, even though that's not an explicit theme within the film itself. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think the Wachowskis always go for broke. Uh, even when they're doing something like Speed Racer, there's an interesting aesthetic choice they're making in Speed Racer that goes to a larger uh, aesthetic theme of filmmaking in general. Yeah. Um, that could be me, me just talking out of my ass, however. No, uh, I think um, you're right. They never half-ass it. They're yeah, always right. Even the Matrix sequels, which I think were a lot of miscalculations in there mm-hmm. as well. They didn't rest on their laurels. Yeah. They push. I just think they made some mistakes along the way. There, there's, I, I always appreciate, uh, e- however bad it might be, I at least appreciate a film that overreaches. I don't like those Matrix sequels so much, mm. but I dug Cloud Atlas. I, I dug uh, all of Darren Aronofsky's films because whenever he's going for broke, like, uh, did you ever see Noah? <laughs> like, I, I did. I was just thinking of Noah, actually, because yeah. I was thinking about The Fountain, which... A part of me when I saw The Fountain was I really appreciate the craft behind it. I think it's a gorgeous production. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started seeing how all the pieces were coming together, cause it takes place in three separate timelines, mm-hmm. the past, the present, the future. And once I saw how those pieces were coming together, part of me was like, oh, I get it. Oh. And then there was another so, hour left. So that's the tree. Oh, yeah. and like, I and I, I, I just I just thought it was too much for too simple a concept. Yeah. But I know why a lot of people like it. Um. It just For me, I, I just thought it like... It kind of ran its course pretty quick, and maybe it would have been a better short than a feature. But, mm-hmm. um, but I was thinking of Noah. Noah is one of the most ambitious historical epics, I think, of the decade. Oh, for sure. It's a big old mess, <laughs> <laughs> but it's an attempt to uh, turn the Bible into something 
mean. Like, just really make go all full Old Testament on it. Yeah. In all of its ugly glory. And I mean that in the best possible way. The Old well, Testament is a hell of a read. It, it's also, it, it's coming from a Jewish filmmaker. Darren yeah. Aronofsky is Jewish. He doesn't have the New Testament to temper that Old Testament wrath. So he's just telling a straight-up Bible story. With rock monsters. Yeah. With ro- as, as, is, as was in the Bible. <laughs> there were rock monsters in the Bible. Fallen angels. But That's how covered, he envisioned them. He envisioned them as covered in rocks, like they were they were burdened by the weight of the earth. They look like is, the Inhumanoids. Come on, they look exactly like the Inhumanoids. <laughs> That's Darren Aronofsky's Inhumanoids. I don't. Movie. I don't want a film based on Inhumanoids, but this will do. This is this is the Inhumanoids movie I always wanted. And then he went went and did another. A uh, freaky Old Testament uh, biblical allegory with Mother, mm, uh, yeah. another really ambitious film that nobody was on the same wavelength as that movie, except for like four critics, and I was one yeah, of them. There's like a handful of people who really liked that. Movie. Yeah, it's it's really disturbing. Yeah, um, yeah. Again, we we like movies that take a big swing, and mm. if they don't entirely connect, well, yeah. bless you. Better that than just going for mediocrity. Yeah, and you know, there are some filmmakers that take big swings a lot and land a lot. I, I feel like Spielberg does that a uh, lot. Uh, yeah, his his films, his later films. Uh, I'm specifically I'm referring to films like The Post and Lincoln. Um, I think he's making these very important, powerful very modern political points with these history dramas. Uh, and I think he's doing it in such a subtle adult way that a lot of his old audiences that are expecting action from him aren't necessarily looking for it. Well, I'll give you an example from Spielberg mm. right now that I think is an underrated film that mm. has lots of interesting ideas and people did not go for it. The BFG. There you go. The BFG is a very sweet Movie And it is a movie about the accumulation of dreams and the importance of friendship and kindness and silliness in a world where people are literally monsters. Um, it's the plot is barely a plot. <laughs> yeah. Like it's a it's a series of events. I'll give you that. But like it's not really a conventional film by any standard. It's odd looking. It's um Full of heart and not much else. But mm. I think attempting to turn a blockbuster movie, or at least an attempted blockbuster movie, into something sort of meandering and kind mm. was a really big swing from Spielberg. And I'm disappointed it didn't find a bigger yeah, audience. It's, it's it's a bit of a jumble, but I think it works. I think, yeah. And it's hilarious. It's very funny. Uh, Mark Rylance plays the giant in motion capture, and he gives a good motion capture performance. He's Mark Rylance. is one of the best yeah. actors we've got. But yeah. He, he, they... they Capture. I'm not going to say like captured the spirit of Roald Dahl because Spielberg, not in a million years, was ever as bitter as Roald Dahl. No, Roald Dahl was a jerk. Yeah, <laughs> he was not apologetic I, for it. I think if if you really want to match a, a director who is like right up Roald Dahl's like sensibility, you get somebody like Terry Gilliam, somebody who's actually incredibly cynical. Yeah. Uh, but I think he understands a certain kind of innocence that Roald Dahl valued. Yeah, Roald Dahl valued innocence, but I think he also understood that uh, the evil giants, mm. you know, with names like, I'm trying to even remember it now, Tongue Crusher. Yeah, Bog Trotter. No, Boris Bog Trotter was from Matilda. But like, uh, yeah, yeah, all these like really ugly, gross names, and they would eat children and everything like that. Mm. I think Roald Dahl thought that that was part of the fun. And I think, <laughs> like, ooh, I want to see those those <laughs> evil... Snatch up and eat children. Evil giants do terrible mm. things. Um, and I think Spielberg only saw them as villains. I mean, yeah. he had a good time putting them on screen, but... Yeah, I think Roald Dahl took a little bit of wicked glee in that carnage. Right. So, 
It's a little different, mm. but anyway. I, I, I feel like nobody's gotten Roald Dahl just right yet. In, uh, fi- in, in film, that is. The closest might be Fantastic Mr. Fox, weirdly enough. I would say it's Fantastic, which is a very loose adaptation. Of, like, it, it's incredibly loose, but it has that weird kind of embittered spirit. Yeah. And it also recognizes that the protagonist is kind of a, a deviant jerk. He's a fox. True. Um, for me, <clears throat> excuse me, I think the closest we've come to nailing Roald Dahl in a film is The Witches. Mm, all right. I think The Witches, the only thing The Witches screws up is it goes for the mega happy ending. It goes for the mega happy ending, and I I don't like the boy. Yeah, I, I understand fine. that the, the, the he's like a he's like Dickens. His protagonists are like the most boring mm. kids. Ben yeah. Roldal will do the same thing. Charlie mm. disappears from Charlie the Jockey Factory. Yeah. He's gone. It's once, just about the factory. Once they're in the factory, yeah. Charlie is gone. And for the first part, he's mostly there for people to tell stories to. Mm. Like, he's not an interesting guy. That's why I actually really like the Gene Wilder version, because they give Charlie more to do. Right. Because at least gets the fizzy lifting scene. <laughs> um... But I think The Witches understands the sort of wretchedness of Roald Dahl, yeah. the, the impish uh, amusement of Roald Dahl. I think it comes it's about, pretty it's about, close. It's about how, how fun The Witches are than it is about defeating a villain. Exactly. I think, um, I think Angelica Houston is, at the very least, the best Roald Dahl villain we've had in a movie. Well, that's fair. Um, and speaking of a Nicholas Rogue film, here's our what? next letter. What uh, are the odds? This is about Don't Look Now from yeah. Brennan. Hello, Brennan. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, I recently saw the movie Don't Look Now while watching all of Nicholas Rogue's movies. You probably saw The Witches as well. Yeah. Uh, I was very surprised when I concluded that it was a near masterpiece because I generally hate horror movies. I usually find them to be very uninteresting with nothing on their mind. For example, uh, Bibbs called The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the best movies of all time. And it's executed pretty well. Uh, I found nothing to grab onto uh, because I just thought it seemed like a plotless story about a boring villain killing people. My question is, why do many people overlook Don't Look Now and not consider it a masterpiece of horror? It was recently voted best British movie of all time by Time Out in 2018, beating classics such as Lawrence of Arabia and Barry Lyndon. Oh, I actually uh, missed that poll. That's interesting. Yeah, uh, that's well, a hell of a Time Out. It's still, yeah. still a number one. Yeah, that's, that's a hell of a thing, yeah. But it seems like nobody talks about this movie, even hor- huge horror buffs like Bibbs. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Oh, is that the end of the letter? That's or? the end of the letter. Okay. Um, well, first off, I do think that there is a group of horror people who do talk about Don't Look Now mm-hmm. and who do love Don't Look Now. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Don't Look Now is a film from the 1970s uh, directed by Nicholas Rogue, who again did The Witches. Uh, it stars Donald Sutherland and Julie, Julie Christie. Christie. I almost yeah. said Harris. It's Julie Christie. Um, as grieving parents, they lost their child in a horrible accident, mm-hmm. and they are uh, they they're in Venice. Their marriage is still going, but it's dispassionate Kinda, yeah. and and detached. Um, and Donald and- Sutherland begins to see like what could be the ghost of their daughter along the canals. Meanwhile, there's a serial killer running along the canals. While uh, Julie Christie ends up uh, falling in with a very odd group of psychics. Uh. It is a, this is a word that gets bandied about a lot, especially when describing horror movies, but mm. this is a really good use of it. Like an old fashioned, yes, it's a haunting movie. <laughs> it is a movie that understands yeah. despair. It's a movie that understands grief. Uh, it has one hell of a gut punch finale. It, it's, it's the finale that really makes it. The finale yeah. is what, the, you, mm. you know, it has such a, it's a, such a wow ending mm. That, uh, yeah, you're not going to forget it anytime soon, even if you thought it was a little slow to begin with. Um, I think the reason we don't look now doesn't have, like, a big mainstream audience is because it's not a mainstream horror movie. It is yeah. basically an art house drama with some supernatural elements. 
Um, that doesn't mean it's not a horror movie, but that's how it plays. Mm. It is a story about a troubled marriage against yeah. the horror backdrop. And that's not what a lot of people, even at the time, turn to for their horror entertainment. They don't. They want to go, ah, mm. no, no, gross, and <laughs> ah, my popcorn, and ah, make out with me. Ah, like, it's not really... Make out with me. Look, a femur. Yeah, it's like... like yeah. You can't really make out to Don't Look Now. <laughs> no. I, you have to really try. <laughs> like, it's, think, you're really working overtime I, I think to that, ignore the movie. No, Don't Look Now is, is well regarded by critics and cinephiles, but uh, yeah, it, it doesn't really make its way into the horror conversation, uh, t- to put a little bit more succinctly. Um, <laughs> Horror audiences want uh, sensationalism. Mainstream horror audiences. Main, that, is to say, main, yeah. that is to say mainstream The people who audiences. go to see a Saw movie every year. Yeah. Which they, I am too, but that's only one part of it. We're an exploitation audience, and I, I include myself in that crowd because I do love a good horror movie. I even love a bad horror movie. Yep. Um, if you got you know a, a lot of sex and death, I'm probably going to be there, even if the movie sucks. Because <laughs> they're, the genre is... On one level, and very importantly, catering to a very base part of ourselves. Well, it's visceral. Yeah. Like, and, fear, uh, is, fear is not a subtle emotion. Hmm. It can be, but oftentimes it's fight or flight panic it, yeah, mode, and a lot of, a lot of horror a, movies go for that. And these sort of, like, slasher-type movies where there's just a monster after you. That's just a visceral response. Don't look now. Well, it has at least one, one or two very incredibly visceral scenes. Like you will not forget how yeah. scary. Like at least one or two scenes in yeah. this movie is. Yeah. Uh, it deals with what you said. It deals with adult themes. It deals with a marriage falling apart. It's not something you can relate to unless you have been married or indeed have been divorced. <laughs> you know, you're not going. <laughs> or at least to, been around. Or at like, least yeah. your parents have. Or maybe, yeah, like, maybe you've witnessed your. But yeah, a lot of like. Exploitation audiences do tend to skew a little bit younger. You don't have to be an adult to enjoy a monster chasing after you. You can be a 14-year-old just saying, hey, look, breasts and blood. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You're not going to be a 14-year-old like popping in, a, you know, wanting to see breasts and blood on a Friday night, and you're not, you're not going to go to the video store and choose Don't Look Now. I actually did. That's how I found Don't Look Now, and it was yeah. great. Uh, it, I, I, yeah, I was an atypical kid. You can but, discover it by mistake. You know, that's, well, I, I knew it was a horror movie. I knew it was well-regarded. Like, I had okay. a book of, like, recommended horror but, movies, yeah, recommended think, movies, and there was one of them, and I watched it, and it was not what I expected yeah. at all, but I was enchanted by it. Uh, even when you compare it to something that's kind, kind of sophisticated, but is also... Um, also kind of a thriller or something like The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. That's a little bit more adult. That's a, a lot more nuanced. That's about sexism in a lot of ways. But it's also uh, kind of an airport novel but, yeah, as well. Yeah, it, but it's, it's an airport novel story. It is about a killer and there you do get a lot of those exploitation elements. There's a severed head in a jar. Yeah. You know, there's there's a lot of like really exciting visceral things in a movie like that. Don't Look Now is so restrained yeah. that you only have the adult anxiety to latch onto and I think only a certain kind of audience is going to be drawn to that. Well, so think- it doesn't make the online lists because 24-year-olds are writing those lists. That's, that's 100%, mm. uh, or at least we're writing lists for 24-year-olds. And here's, well, that's also part here, of it. I, I, here's, uh, and I think it touches upon a, an issue that goes even beyond the horror genre, mm. which is that a lot of discourse, a lot of cinematic discourse, a lot of film criticism, mm. recommendation lists, etc., is geared towards younger audience members. Mm. People who are being introduced to things for the first time, which is important. We need that constantly. We need to reevaluate things for mm. younger audiences. Um, 
But also it's just generally perceived, as it is in Hollywood, that young people is where the money is at. And as a result, that's who we cater to over and over again. Like, will kids want to read about this? But but then they put out something like, something's got to give from a big fat Greek wedding. And women over 50 are driving to these things in droves. Like, oh, who would have thought? Everybody knew. That's the thing. (laughs) make more movies. The the kids that we're catering to now Uh will hopefully still be alive in 20 years. And they're going to want different movies about their experiences as adults, eventually. There will always be an interest and a market, even as for older people. It's what we call four quadrant movies, for you know action movies mm. and flights of fancy and tawdry horror films. There will always be a market for that, but there is also a market for movies about adults and adult problems. This is one of the reasons why the 1970s is what's such a fascinating decade for cinema because. <sighs> A lot of the hit movies, and if you adjust for inflation, a lot of the most box office successful movies of all time, like in the top 10 or 20, were in the 70s, and they were made for adults. Yeah. Godfather is a movie that has some obvious appeal to young people, but its themes and its characters are going through adult issues. The Exorcist, yeah, she vomits pea soup, but that is a story about adults wrestling wrestling with secularism. Like, that's... It's it's a complex story for adults. The Exorcist's not that scary. But, but I, when I was a kid, I didn't think so. That's yeah, kind of yeah. my point. When I was a kid, it got built up so much that when I watched it, when I was like 17 or whatever... You're, you're thinking it's going to be like the ultimate Freddy movie. I thought it yeah. was going to be like Evil Dead 2 or something, mm. and which is a great movie as well. But it's not catering to the things I was afraid of when I was a teenager. And when I revisited it in my late 20s and my early 30s and such, and I started personally wrestling with a lot of the things that Ellen Burstyn is wrestling with, not Regan McNeil, Mm. or the things that Jason Miller is wrestling with, again, as opposed to Regan McNeil, then I was scared. Uh Because then I see the terror of someone you love is sick. Then I (laughs) see the terror of there is no rational explanation for the thing that plagues me. What if things that I couldn't possibly have conceived of as possible or real are the only solution to my problems? And there's this whole existential religious crisis that comes from that. Mm. These are movies for adults. We do not talk about movies for adults very often. And if we do, we tend to only talk about them around Oscar time. And then even then we say the Academy is out of touch because they're liking movies that are by and about 40-year-olds. Mm. You will – if you're young now and you don't see any value in that, I hope you will one day. <laughs> because it will 40, yeah. Because it will mean you have life experiences mm. and those things will connect with you and you will value seeing those things in fiction and media. Yeah. Um, you might not now. I get that. And I, I and have I, been and the I, same way. And, actually, I'm, and I know people in their mid-40s who don't watch movies about 40-year-olds. They yeah. watch movies about fantasy 20-year-olds. And I'll, I'll give you an example right now. We're going to talk about in the next episode of Critically Acclaimed that The Irishman. Mm. The Irishman is an old man's perspective on the gangster genre. Yeah. Not the young man's perspective of Mean Streets. Not the middle-aged man's perspective from Goodfellas. Old, old man. Old man. man. Made by a man in his 70s about people in their 70s and older. Mm-hmm. Looking back on their lives. Reflecting on their lives and also that genre of films. And I'm watching the movie and I'm thinking this is very impressive, but I'm keenly aware that it is not made from my perspective. Mm. Part of that is really fascinating. Part of that is something that I'm watching this. I'm like, I feel like I'm going to grow into this movie. Yeah. Like, eventually, I will appreciate this movie on a level I don't now just because I'm in my 30s. I'm too young to, Mm. to see what Martin Scorsese is seeing exactly. Yeah. So... 
I think Don't Look Now is one of those films. It is an it is a horror movie about adult problems and anxieties yeah. and a lot of the people who write about horror movies or a lot of the people that the people who write about horror movies are forced to write for aren't into that. Yeah. I, I find that there's a great irony uh, to this sort of aging of, of films, especially of horror films. Mm-hmm. Because we we understand, like, we're talking about the horror audience, and we're thinking of, like, a teenage audience, like a high school, maybe early college, 17. And we're thinking about what a 17-year-old's concerns are, what they're drawn to, what they want to see in a movie, all of these exploitation elements. They want to see a lot of uh, sensationalistic stuff. They want to see blood. Yeah. They want to see boobs. Uh, buttocks, penises, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> to be an uh, equal, equal opportunity. It's my college band, the Buttocks uh, Penises. <laughs> I have their first three records. Uh, <laughs> at least that they're was playing best. Bonnaroo this year. <laughs> <laughs> the people who made those movies aren't 17-year-olds. Yeah. They're in their 40s. Yeah. The people who made those movies are actually trying to actively pander to a certain kind of audience. Yes. They're rarely successful. I, I don't see a lot of films about teenagers that accurately convey the teenage experience. Uh, they usually fall back on very broad cliches when it comes to writing their characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe Scream. Uh, eighth grade. I mean, we're that, that, uh, no, I'm, ta- I'm, ta- I'm talking about, about horror, horror movies I'm in particular. Like, I'm thinking just yeah. in general. I think people in general, yeah, it's kind of, kind of hard to make, make movies about teenagers. Yeah, there have been good Scream ones. Scream was kind of of its time. Yeah. I'll give you Scream. But... Um, but yeah, uh, the the irony is like, oh well, we need to see all of these films about young people for young people, and the ones that the young people are taking with them as they grow up were all written by the same stodgy forty year old guys that you're lambasting all the time. Yeah. So perspective. End it. <laughs> yeah. End it. Uh, we have time for a couple more. Let's right. do that. Uh, here's a letter from David. Hello, David. Hi. Um, Back at the beginning of September, I set myself uh, the personal challenge of watching 100 movies by the end of 2019. All movies I had not seen before. Okay. films. Ambitious, but Noble excellent. endeavor. Uh, as of this writing, on October 29th, I am 45. Okay. So I'm expecting that I should get there by the end of the year. Wish me luck. Good luck, sir. I like this, I like this sort of, like, yeah. film aficionado version of Brewster's Millions. You just gotta get through as many as you can after a while. <laughs> anyway, I noticed whilst planning out uh, what I would watch that uh, Happy Death Day was added to Netflix here in the UK. Mm. And I remember hearing the two of you rave about it. So suffice to say, I watched it and I loved it. Yay! Then I rented Happy Death Day to you two days later and I loved that too. So Yay! thanks for the recommendation. I love Jessica Roth. She needs to be in everything. Agreed. Yeah. She should uh, She should play Dracula and Van Helsing in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Just use like trick photography. That'd be neat. Uh, I wanted to watch more horror comedies because of it, and in my research, I came across the 2017 Christmas comedy thriller Better Watch Out, mm. which I watched this past week, and oh my god, this movie! <laughs> my immediate thought at the end was watching, well, I bet Bibbs and Whitney love this movie. So, Bibbs and Whitney, have you seen it, and do you love Better Watch Out? It took me a long time to get to the question, but I hope you enjoyed the journey. <laughs> there you go. Best David. Uh, Whitney, hmm. have you seen Better Watch Out? I haven't seen Better Watch Out. Uh, I'm, I uh, uh, I didn't have to watch Better Watch Out for work, so I'm, I did something with Better Watch Out I almost never do, which mm. is I didn't finish it. Oh my goodness! Okay, um, because I found and I if you've seen Better Watch Out, you'll appreciate. I don't want to ruin it for you, but you'll appreciate why this is sort of ironic. I found like the young male teen character, this kid is being mm. babysat at like Christmas, um, just so, completely. It, 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 uh, reprehensible. I just found him terrible. 
Is it played by the same actor who played Peter Pan? Uh, is he really? In in Pan. We okay. Oh, that. that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I just, I just, I lost all interest. I didn't care about his journey. Turns out that where the film goes, I'm, I, I, I may have been right to do so. But uh, yeah, I think I was a little ahead of the movie or something. Okay. Um, I just, I just, I couldn't get into it. I guess I owe it a rewatch. I know a lot of people really, really love it. Um, but uh, yeah, this that one isn't for me. I'm just going to flat okay. out say it. that one is not. That one was not for me. But uh, I, when people keep raving about movies, I didn't care for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I can't give it a real critique. I didn't finish it, but just mm-hmm. it, it wasn't working for me. I didn't watch it all. Um, but people keep raving about it, and it's probably something I'll revisit mm-hmm. uh, later this year. I try to watch Christmas horror movies around Christmas. Uh, in addition to my Hallmark favorites. Mm. So um, I will try to revisit that. Okay. That's what I'll say. I will try yeah. to revisit that. Sounds good. I'm, I'm trying to go back to an, a little bit of an older letter here. Mm-hmm. Um, here we go. Here's yeah. a letter from Alistair. Hello, Alistair. Hi. Uh, hello again, Bibbs and Whitney. To begin with, I apologize for sending so many letters in rapid succession. Uh, we don't read every single letter. I no. gotta say that we just don't don't have the capacity for it. Now that we have this letters show, we're, we're getting to a lot more of them. Though, right. so I apologize if yours was one of the ones lost in the big swirl. Yeah. Uh, but here we are. Yeah. Um, Your show gives me a lot to think about, and each email I only have so much space to get it all down. A question I've been interested in myself lately based on my interactions with people on the internet. In your experience as film critics, Mm -hmm. as people who talk about media and public spaces, Mm. do you find that you get a more hostile reaction for disliking the popular thing Mm. or for liking the unpopular thing? Speaking for myself, I think I most often encounter the latter. That might be just a consequence of the circles I tend to travel in online, but I'd be interested in hearing what your thoughts are based on your much more extensive experience of this. As an addendum, I can understand the former position much more easily. People make the fiction they consume an element of their identity and interpret criticism as a personal attack. But what do you think informs the latter phenomenon? Why do you think people badly react when something somebody likes something that they don't. Thanks again for all your great shows. I'll try my best to stop inundating you in the future. Don't, don't stop Alistair. inundating yeah. me. We might not read every email, but keep keep on writing. Mm-hmm. By all means, if it makes you happy, keep on writing, and we'll read what we can. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting question. It's something that we talk a lot about on Twitter, but we don't necessarily talk about elsewhere. Um, critics get a lot of hate mail. Not just comments, emails. Mm-hmm. My most recent death threat came because, well, not so much a death threat, just a, an impassioned plea for me to kill myself. Hooray. Uh, came because I didn't hate Doom Annihilation. I gave it like oh, a two-star review, two and a half tops. Like, And I was told that because of that, I mm-hmm. should kill myself. That's an email I got. They took the time to write an email. <laughs> like, that's, <sighs> that's um, passion, man. And and that's a curious one because right? Doom and what is I guess Doom Annihilation kind of has a circle in the video game community. Well, the original so that has like a, a, the, a built-in audience. The video game I've played the Doom games. Okay, it's, the Doom Annihilation is not a bad adaptation of Doom. It's it captures a lot of the Doom stuff. It's cheaper, mm-hmm. but it's more accurate to the games than the Dwayne Johnson movie, which I apparently 
has a big cult following, which baffles me because I recently rewatched it, like last year, and it holds up so badly. <laughs> it is not. Like, a, it's it worse was, than I remembered, and I didn't remember it being. I, I wouldn't good. even say it held up because it wasn't holding up anything before. It was oh, just bad enough. from the start. Like it just doesn't work. Mm. So I was really shocked. I thought I was like catering to the majority here, where we all agree that Doom the movie kind of sucked. Yeah, barely not. Um, Jeez. But I think the thing, and when we talked a lot about how the things that we love. Hmm. have, over the last few decades, uh, culture has encouraged us to take the things we love and make them part of our personal identity. Get a tattoo of Star Wars, for God's sake. Hmm. Um, That kind of thing. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but it leads to some ugly things. From a marketing perspective, it's just successful marketing. Hmm. Uh, You... um, I, I forgot. I think it might have been Scott Mendelson and Forbes who wrote when Jurassic World, the first Jurassic World, came out, and all of a sudden it made half a billion dollars in a weekend, which oh, never, never happened before. Yeah, and after like a after like a middling one too, like Jurassic Park three, it's, it's actually good. Like it's fine. Yeah. It's it's a dumb movie, but it's fun. Like it's, no one cared. Sight better than the Lost World, anyway. But. Yeah. Yeah, everyone suddenly cared about Jurassic Park yeah. afresh, and uh, th- this new movie came out. Everybody saw it. Everybody, l- I ostensibly loved it. Had a good time. Anyway. Yeah. I think. I think had a good time. Had a good time. With I, it. I had a good time with Jurassic World. It was a dumb movie, but I had a fun the, uh, watching it. The idea and the, all like the next day after its opening day, even like maybe on its opening day, I said, okay. Uh, Universal has greenlit several more of these Jurassic features. They're going to do a, a new ride. They're going to do a lot more th- uh, tie-ins to their theme park, yeah, like mm-hmm. other tie-ins to their theme parks. And the idea is whenever we have a success, we can't just have a success. There has to be this inst- – it's like that huge success was this gigantic wedge into the heart of the culture. And the companies are moving in to entrench themselves permanently – I think that's been uh, like Disney's sort of uh, strategy this whole time. Yeah, I agree. They want to make sure they're deep in the middle of your heart from an early age. Mm -hmm. So you think of the company as something kind of warm and special, even as they do whatever they do aggressively business-wise. Yeah. I wonder if Walt Um, would have liked that. I think he encouraged that sort you of thing. You think so? I think yeah. initially he was just making movies for kids. I don't think he was trying to, like... I don't think he was thinking multi-generationally the yeah. way that the corporation is now. So, yeah. Uh, you know, you th- maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you, you, you look at lists of, like, genres in video stores, and Disney is a genre now. It's a yeah. company. It's just one studio. It's a slice on the Schmodown wheel. Yeah. It's the only studio that has its own slice. Yeah, Universal doesn't have that. Yeah, Disney G- is considered... Janus an, doesn't have an that. Imp- <laughs> Disney is considered an imprimatur. Imprimatur, yeah. In, well, whatever. It's, it's considered like a stamp. Yeah. Disney has its own stamp. And it's a corporation, for fuck's sake. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of uh, rather insidious marketing in order to worm their way in very deliberately mm-hmm. and own your nostalgia. Right. So they are constantly bleeding money out of you to so you can have those good feelings again. You're right. Um, is is well, it's just pretty insidious. That's the whole point. My, my point, and I was I was getting to it after I sorry, esta- I no, no, I, I was ranting there. That's no, fine. Yeah. We established a baseline, and I think we can all agree that to one extent or another, as a, a cultural thing now, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people define themselves by stuff they love, whether it's sports or Doctor Who or mm-hmm. Star Wars or Downton Abbey or whatever, uh-huh. whatever it is. There's nothing horribly wrong with that, but it put, it puts blinders on us. Mm. I think the inverse is also true, and I think a lot of times it's easy to define yourself by what you hate. Mm. 
it's green eggs and ham. It's very simple. It's green yeah. eggs and ham. You are told <laughs> over and over again. It looks unappealing. You know, mm-hmm. like it, I, I, I have a Jupiter Ascending T-shirt mm-hmm. that I wear to bring up Jupiter Ascending again. A movie with a just a terrible word of mouth around it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not claiming it's a perfect film, but like it's, I think it's really interesting and fun, and I've been touting its praises. Um, I get a lot of people who look at that shirt and go, oh. And then I was like, oh, have you seen it? And they say, no. Mm. And I'm like, then what's the, oh? <laughs> I understand I've heard bad things, but what's the guttural reaction, mm. like this knee-jerk gag reflex you have? It's because hating something that is universally reviled is expected. Like, you don't hear a lot of people claiming that Batman and Robin is a legitimately good film. Mm. And I would argue that's because it's not. But <laughs> regardless, like, it's just like when we, it's just this easy target. We accept that that movie's bad. We accept mm. that The Room is bad. We accept that all of these things that are, we're told are bad are bad. Learning to unhate something is tricky. Opening yourself up to the idea that this thing that, you hated, maybe you saw it once and hated it. Maybe you've grown since then or have the capacity to grow since then. Uh, maybe you never gave it a fair shot. Maybe you never looked at it from the right perspective. That can be just as like destructive to a sense of self as the possibility that something you love sucks. Hmm. The idea that something you thought you hated has value. And I have grown so much more from finding out that things that I thought I didn't like have great value. <laughs> than I have from the reverse and finding out yeah. the things I like have have had weaknesses. I've grown from that too. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I was young, it was really hip to hate on Titanic. Oh, absolutely. It was, yeah, it when was I first, when you're yeah. in college in 1997. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it's, it's this, it came out in the late nineties, uh, an era of great sarcasm, cult- yeah. sarcasm and irony. Yeah. The emotional detachment was where, A, the youth culture was, and B, a lot of the cinema that catered to that youth culture was. Mm -hmm. So this incredibly sincere, unapologetically old-fashioned... Sentimental film. Yeah, Yeah. a Hollywood romance tragedy with, like, only the propeller guy is funny. Like, everything else is, is like, legitimately just totally sincere and tender. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was not made for me. As a result, I thought that the film and the enormous success that it had had to be something to bulk at. Mm. And I, for when I was young, and I'm, I'm just going to say it, stupider, <laughs> uh, I couldn't imagine why this movie, which has obvious flaws, the dialogue does kind of suck. Mm. I, I, I can admit that, but like... I couldn't p- picture it, and I defined myself as, oh yeah, I'm going to be this counterculture guy. I don't like Titanic. And then I re- finally rewatched Titanic like 10 years after that. I'm like, this movie is the shit. <laughs> this movie is yeah. fucking phenomenal. Like, again, the dialogue does kind of suck. I'll give you that. But, like, it's not because they were going for David Mamet, it's because they were going for this very earnest, sincere, no, not a lot of wit to it. It's uh-huh. just people emoting and being honest and I was not ready for that and when my finally opened up and said you know what I'll admit it I was wrong (laughs) I hated Titanic Uh, now I love Titanic I think Titanic is one of James Cameron's best movies it's a great movie I'm a better person for for acknowledging that something that I thought I hated Uh 
has real value. That's mm. it's, and I try to remove hate from my lexicon. <laughs> and I use it very sparingly. Uh, I, I, I use it and, when and, I use it when it's honest. Yeah. That's all I can say. Yeah. If, if I honestly hate something, I'm going to say it because that's the curse of the critic. Yeah, you have to say how you feel. Yeah, but um, I, it's very rare that I hate a movie. Yeah, it's very um, rare that I would use the word hate for a movie. Uh, because I was raised sort of in that filmmaking milieu, I suppose. Take a drink. Yeah. Uh, that kind of yeah. You know, I was I was in college when Titanic came out. I was right on the crest of that. Uh, hating it for the sake of it. Mm. Uh, how uh, and you know the whole '90s were a, a lot more geared toward a counterculture, about toward destroying the mainstream. No, uh, which was a reaction to the '80s, which was about embracing the mainstream. And now we've gone through a 20-year period where we're embracing the mainstream again. But yeah, uh, oh, I'm looking forward to that being over. I'm, I'm looking forward to the counterculture That's rising again. I can't nice. wait to see what rises in opposition to. Marvel and Disney yeah, and DC yeah. and Star Wars and like I think, yeah oh it's gonna be great one, I can't wait to see what it looks like one of the streaming giants is going to unexpectedly collapse someday and that's gonna be the start of it I expect it to collapse yeah we, no one can afford like we've no made can, so many there's, there's too much money in it it's, it's a bubble we're, everyone, on, a, we're yeah. on an entertainment bubble and it's gonna burst at some point it really is and then eventually yeah. we're gonna realize that only like maybe two studios yeah. have enough content to justify their own streaming service and admittedly one of them is probably Disney yeah uh, especially now that they own Fox, mm. but like like Disney and Warner Brothers can probably afford to have their own streaming service. Yeah, Paramount everyone, Universal, not no, as much. Everyone else should probably all like work together and like rally <laughs> behind like a, a new a, streaming service, yeah, like, yeah, a t- like a TCM type streaming service. I just feel like if everything like yeah, because it's like we're, we're if you want to subscribe to everything, you're paying as much or more than you would have for cable. Yeah. So well, the much, amount of money... Well, much more, it turns out. And yeah. one of the appeals of streaming was you'd save money. Mm. You won't anymore. They <laughs> fucked that up real but, uh, bad because they got greedy. But as, as a result, uh, going back to the original topic, we're yeah. straying a lot here. Um, whenever a big, huge, like, supra-popular thing comes, like, prepackaged as this is the next big thing... I'm really skeptical. That's mm-hmm. just in my makeup now. It's like, oh, it, it chapter two. It's the best thing you've ever seen. Is it now? I say, and, and mm-hmm. I don't. I don't watch the movie with arms folded. I, I have to let the film tell me what it's going to say, and I might love it and I might hate it, but I'm going to be open to it. Yeah, you're open to the possibility but that it might suck. All of or the, be more wonderful. I'm allowed to keep my arms crossed as much as I like for all the pre-show hype. Because yeah. that's uh, that's BS. That's not anything to do with the movie. That's just hype and advertising. Well, you, you've made a point mm. on many an occasion. I was recently um, touting it to someone, I can't remember who, but mm. um, that you've, you've often said that the time to get excited about a movie is after, after you've you seen see it. After you see the movie, yeah. So you know it's worth getting excited about. <laughs> There's interest. Uh-huh. Curiosity has been piqued. But getting excited about it beforehand is a recipe for, at the well, very I'm, least, unrealistic expectations. Also, your curiosity has been piqued. Okay, okay, here's a little bit more. Here's another preview. Ooh, now I'm really interested yeah, in it. Yeah, okay. See it doesn't little... need to go further than that. It doesn't need to be this four-month-long process of interviews and leaks and other like magazine articles and think pieces mm. All, which all functionally is advertising. Anyway, we're, we're, mm. we're way off the topic again. But the, the, let's, let's come back to the, we're, we're talking about the, the culture of liking a popular thing or disliking or disliking un- a popular thing or liking a po- an unpopular thing. Yeah, exactly. And which we've and, done. And I honestly mm. think if you're a critic and you find yourself liking everything that's popular and disliking everything that's unpopular, what are mm. you contributing to the discourse? Like, you need to make sure that you're adding. I feel like that's important. You need to mm. like, what do I have a point of view? Do I bring something interesting to the table? Um, that's not to say that if you find yourself doing that, that you just should just reverse your positions and everything. But it, it, it's odd. 
because I feel like people are people and they're idiosyncratic mm. and have weird tastes. Every individual person has something that they like that is outside the mainstream, or something that they dislike that is in the mainstream. Mm. Um, and I think any decent critic finds himself doing both, at least sometimes. Yeah. So every once in a while you champion something that everyone else says sucks. And every once in a while you say something sucks that everyone else champions. And as a result, you stand out. Mm-hmm. You're the one splat on Rotten Tomatoes. You're the <laughs> one fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. And all of a sudden people are like, who's this guy? Mm-hmm. Or gal? Mm. Or whatever. Like, who's this person who dares to be different? You're Homer Simpson in the pink shirt. <laughs> like, who, how dare you be different? These how, color monitors are paying us. Um, yeah. And, and, and that's and, something that is actually kind of scary because it's so easy to target people it's easy to online target nowadays people. for abuse, trolling at least. The, the assumptions. And of course, there's all the assumptions that you're not being honest, that you're just mm-hmm. doing it for negative attention. We're critics. We're going to get negative attention no matter what. Also, it's negative not, attention sucks. It sucks. And also, it, you know, it's, it's, anyway, it's not our job to reflect popular opinion. I say that a lot. And, yeah. uh, I think even the best critics aren't necessarily going to know what a big hit is going to look like. Sometimes I'm really surprised. Yeah. Like, I love a movie and I think everyone we, else is going to love can't... it too. And then I see the reviews. And I'm like, mm. I was alone on this. I thought we all had a good time in the theater. I thought Valerian would be a hit. I honestly did. It was I such, at least I thought such critics a great would time. like it. Yeah, I thought people would really kind of glom onto this thing. Yeah. People ignored it in droves. Ugh. Uh, no critic, I think, however good they are, is actually going to have that power. If they were, they would be film executives. They'd be producing the films. Yeah, they wouldn't be reacting to them. Yeah. Every uh, once in a while, that, so, that shift does happen. But so what is popular and what is unpopular shouldn't really matter to a critic. No. They're just going to say what's what. And of course, yes, there's the temptation to be a contrarian. Mm-hmm. That's a real thing we contend with. Yeah, every once in a while. Uh, every once like, in a while. Because it's, you have a contrarian point of view and then you want to like, well, I'm, I'm on the outside yeah, here. I can push it and be a little louder. I, I, I want to be heard because yeah. everyone else is saying something else. I'm yeah. one of the only people saying this other thing. So please listen to me. Yeah, I'm going to say it I will in an obnoxious way. Yeah. I will, well, try not to be obnoxious, but like you, we will write an editorial very pointedly saying, hey, listen, there's another perspective here. I really want to espouse it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, People think that you're just trying to be different, which people somehow equate to bad. No, people, they, they think you're being dishonest. Like you actually I mean, liked it, but you're saying you didn't. I know. There's also uh, – I had another point. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, in any case, I feel like I get it just about equally. Okay. I feel I, like I get just as many I, – I, I feel like a good day for me online is when I get accused in the same day – of hating Disney mm. and supporting Disney too much. <laughs> and getting paid off by Disney. Yeah, like if you're accused of both things, I think mm. you're probably doing it right. Because yeah. that means you're being honest about the things that work and you're being fair with your criticism. You are being critical. Mm. Which is the – a lot of people are like, oh, critics should only support the things that they love. Mm. That's part of it. You should also that, say when something sucks. Especially if it's a big popular thing. Because, you, you know, it's like... What, punching what, upwards. Well, yeah, what, what is this thing telling to the populace in general? Anyway, uh, yeah. do we have room for one more letter? Last letter. Time? Last okay. letter. Uh, this is actually a, a letter from somebody who has been going back and listening to old episodes of the B-Movies podcast. Oh, don't do that. You sure? Yeah, don't. No, no, don't, don't, don't go back. Don't, don't, don't go, go back. back. We're, 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 we're better uh, people in podcasts. A, a lot of our podcasts uh, are still up on the mandatory.com website. I know. It changed, it, it changed brands, but our podcasts are still up. I know. There. Moving on. Uh, anyways, dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, since I can't get enough of you two, my journey through your entire back catalog continues. I'm currently finishing up with the B-Movies podcast for the second time. Wow. So they know what they're getting through. Okay. Uh, 
this time I started with the final episode and I've been moving back ever since. Right now I'm on episode 135 of the B-Movies podcast, so there's still uh, much Bibbs and Wayne greatness to look forward to, although the Ooh. earliest episodes are no longer available on mandatory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's a really fun experiment to observe how you have evolved as film critics. I hope we have. Got uh, it. Hosts, yeah. entertainers, and uh, as far as I can tell, people. Bibbs, you used to be so raunchy. <laughs> I, was, you, you, I was told to be raunchy. I was that was kind we, of a mandate from above. We were so, yeah, told we were, to we were be like... Teaching ourselves to cuss more than we ordinarily did. Yeah, we were we were told to be more Howard Sterny. Yeah. early on, and I were I wish we we, we, we we cussed a lot. We weren't so pervy. I'm glad that never kind of. We tried not to do yeah. that. We we talked. You know, we were, we weren't like, like super lascivious. Or anything, no, no, no. Yeah. We I wouldn't have wanted. Yeah. That. Um, it's also interesting to hear your, how your discussions of various movie news quote. Uh, how much has changed? One of the most striking examples is your reaction to Time Warner rejecting a takeover offer from Fox. It makes you think, doesn't it? Mm. I wrote down what you said. Uh, William says, this doesn't shock me. I think it was bound to happen. Hugh Jackman even joked about this when he, I interviewed him for X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, when we were talking about uh, how he wants to be Old Man Logan. This was before he played Logan. Mm. Uh, it, one day. In the comic, Wolverine fought the Hulk. I said, it's too bad you won't get to fight the Hulk. And Hugh Jackman said, dude, when I'm old enough to play Old Man Logan, everything in the world is going to be owned by one corporation anyway. Fair point, Hugh Jackman. Well played, Hugh Jackman. Whitney responded by saying, this is just a sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> well played, Whitney. <laughs> uh, and, and fittingly enough, the next X-Men film was called Apocalypse. Um, Whitney, or people with money wanting more money. I'm I'm not fine with it, but I'm a little bit at peace with it. Here's what bugs me about it. I saw multiple articles talking about how... If, uh, if this had happened, Superman and the X-Men could be in the save movie. That's the most important thing? B-Movies Podcast, episode 181, 21st minute. Yeah. <laughs> Your unofficial archivist, Adam. Thanks, um, Adam. I, I don't remember that news when Warner and Fox were oh, going God, to merge. so long ago. It was ago. a while ago. It was 2014 this, that the happened. The news cycle is so absurd. And it didn't happen. So, yeah. like, it, it's easy to just forget about it. But that did almost happen. Mm -hmm. I remember that. I remember it now, but like, but yeah, we, yeah, we were even a little bit skeptical of it in 2014, and here we are, 2019, and it happened. Yeah. Disney buys up Fox, and now everything's just sort of collapsing in on each other, and all the headlines are about two fictional properties can now interact. It's like that's the most important thing, is it? Well, again, they're catering to the young demographic and the people who are older and have other concerns beyond that. Not that that's not interesting; it is interesting, but. It's only one thing. It's only mm -hmm. one small element of a larger story that largely got underreported and presented as this awesome thing. You may never be allowed to see aliens in a movie theater again. Yeah. That's a thing now. That's, because yeah, Matt, Disney Matt's owns aliens. Uh, Matt Zoller Seitz wrote a really terrific article about uh, – and a really well-researched article as well. He talked to a lot of movie theaters yeah. about how – uh, Disney bought up the Fox catalog, and because they have always been really stingy with their archive, archive, mm -hmm. uh, you will not see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in a midnight show. Yeah, if they uh, they might officially re-release something down the road the way mm -hmm. Disney has. Yeah, but but they, if not, you're not going to just get to see a midnight screening of yeah, Die Hard ever again. So they yeah they essentially took their Fox catalog, which had a really heavy rotation and repertory screenings, mm -hmm. and they're putting it in the vault. You don't get to see Alien. You don't get to see Die Hard at midnight screenings. The Exorcist, the Fathom events. Don't, aren't going to happen anymore. Yeah, all of those movies that they bought up, mm -hmm. and you could see kind of on the regular if you were paid attention to your local repertory theater. If Planet you had of the one. Apes, yeah, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, they're all gone. They're the all Omen. they're all in the in the vault, as it were. 
yeah. which is just to say manufactured scarcity. There's no vaults. Like they don't yeah. have a there's not a big steel door somewhere with a bunch of film prints in it. Yeah. So and as a result, they're driving people to their streaming services, which is what That's, they can yeah. do now. Um it used to be they put things in the vaults so that when they did release them on home video, there'd be a big buying spree rather mm. than just business as usual. Yeah. I can choose to buy this or not. Because they'd say, and after this, it's gone forever. Yep. Until the next re-release, but which now, might be in like seven years. So you gotta get your copy now. But now it's you either pay for Hulu or you pay for Disney Plus, or you don't get to see that, mm-hmm. and you'll probably never get to see it in the theater ever again. Yeah. Thanks, Disney. Buy the videos. Buy videos. Buy them up now. Especially Fox, actually. Yeah, That's buy, something that we're not Fox, talking about. Fox Blu-rays, Fox yeah. DVDs. Just so, buy them. There's a really good chance Disney will never release that on a home video again. That's mm. a the actual thing. Mm. So if there are movies released by Fox that you love, and you want to have access to them always, whether or not you subscribe to Disney Plus, or whether or not Disney Plus or Hulu decides to put them on the service because they don't have any obligation to do so, get them. Yeah. They're actually worth money. It's worth owning <laughs> things. Like, movies yeah. have value. Movies, The people who make movies deserve money for their work. Yeah. Like... They have value. I know mm. streaming is great and it gives us everything for for, this, for yeah. a low cost overall, but if you care about the thing, mm. it has value. So, um, all right, that's it for We've Got Mail. Thank Hooray. you, everybody, for listening. Uh, we love you all. Um, thank you, everybody, especially for writing in. You can write us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, and we will try to read as many of your letters as we can. And we love you and appreciate you. And we hope you have a great uh, week. Uh, if you're listening to this for the 31st, you hope you have a great Halloween. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Don't forget to check out our Patreon if you can afford to contribute. We sure would love to have you over there. We have exclusive content. Um, we have to do a little bit of catching up. We're going to do it later this week. We have bunch of stuff in the pipeline. It's a bunch mm-hmm. of really cool uh, exclusive episodes, Star Trek, Jupiter Ascending, uh, Oscar-nominated, Best Picture nominees, uh, TV miniseries, the whole shebang. It's a lot of cool stuff. Um, and uh, by all means, check out other stuff on this network. We have the Critically Acclaimed Podcast. We review new movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Canceled Too Soon, uh, where we review TV shows that lasted only one season or less. We have one more episode in our Ghastly-tober, which frankly at this rate might come on the first uh so but it's the day of the dead so it's fine yeah, yeah. uh it's halloween so let's do hallow now um and then next month we're doing suddenly last season where we review tv shows that were only recently canceled this last year yeah um and we have some cool stuff lined up including stuff like tuka and birdie and swamp thing so um again thank you everybody for joining us you're awesome and uh sincerely bibs and whitney <laughs>